Good morning and welcome to our live broadcast at First Presbyterian Church. It is a joy to come into your home today with good news about God who loves you. We are located in beautiful Uptown Columbus on the corner of 11th and 1st. We would love for you to join us for worship or just stop by and say hello. At First Presbyterian Church, we welcome you with grace and gratitude for God's love. Our first lesson today comes from Isaiah chapter 43, and beginning with verse 16, listen now to the Word of God. And thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea and a path in the mighty waters, who brings out chariot and horse, army and warrior, they lie down and they cannot rise, they are extinguished quick like a wick. Do not remember the former things or consider the things of old. I am about to do a new thing, and now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild animals will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself." so that they may declare my praise. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. I invite you to stand as you are able that we might hear the gospel reading this morning from the 12th chapter of John, verses 1 through 8. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. There they gave a dinner for him, Martha served, and Lazarus, one of those at the table with him. Mary took a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard anointed, and anointed Jesus' feet and wiped them with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the one whom was about to betray Jesus, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He kept the common purse and used to steal what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone. She brought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. You always will have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. We believe in the essential worth and dignity of every human being. Fair and impartial treatment must be accorded to all citizens in the enforcement and administration of the law. Every citizen is entitled to equal access to employment as they are qualified by training and experience to perform. Educational opportunities must be available to people on an equal basis. No one, whatever their cause or convictions, 
is above the law. How do these statements fall on your ears? Do you hear political affirmations of one form or another? Do they make you think of things that are currently happening? The statements come from 1968, almost 50 years ago. They were published in the, one of the daily newspapers of Jackson, Mississippi, the state capital of that, the capital of that state. They were published on May 1st. All of the 200 or so individuals who signed them, who signed the statement, who, who paid the subscription to have it published, were white. They were mostly men, but some women involved as well. Some would say that by today's standards, these affirmations are platitudes. But given the ongoing nature of race and class and politics in our world, I have to wonder about that. Back in the day, though, this was kind of bold. May 1st, 1968, it was three and a half weeks after Martin Luther King Jr. had been assassinated. It was a little more than a month before Senator Robert Kennedy of New York, was, who was running for president, would be assassinated. It was a highly charged time. Mississippi had a long history of racial violence with lynchings going back into the late 1800s and carrying through into the 1900s. In 1964, three civil rights workers were murdered by the Ku Klux Klan in Neshoba County, Mississippi. In November of 1967, just about six and a half, seven months before this statement was published, the rabbi of Temple Beth Israel Congregation in Jackson, the Jewish, Jewish synagogue, his home was firebombed. It was a time of violence. And yet, 200 or so men and women of business leaders, doctors, lawyers, accountants, business folk, as well as your obligatory preacher or two thrown in there, signed this statement. Jewish and Catholic, Baptist and Methodist, Episcopalian, and even a few Presbyterians. Given all that emotion, given all that stuff, it was a difficult time. I discovered this statement four or five years ago. I had never heard about it before then, even though I grew up in Jackson, Mississippi. And as a child, 11 or 12 in 1968, I would travel by the home of the Jewish rabbi every time I went to church. It was on our way to church every single Sunday and most Wednesdays that we went. The home that had been bombed. But the most amazing thing about it to me were the, the people who signed it. I looked at the names, and I recognized many of them. There were the fathers of high school, of classmates that I had, and there was my own father's name as well. I had never heard about it 
He had never said anything about it. And when I asked him, he could not recall. Dementia had begun to creep away at him, and he did not recall. And when I asked my mother later, she said, I don't recall it either. She doesn't have dementia. She said, I don't recall it either. I can tell you, though, that there was no negative consequence from that. Nothing bad happened because we made this statement, because your father signed this piece. But I have to wonder. Isaiah sings forth, Thus says the Lord, Do not remember the former things, or consider the things of old, the Lord says, I am about to do a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I am about to do a new thing. The people of Israel had been in captivity when they heard Isaiah's prophecy. They had been captured. Literally, they had been defeated in battle. And a large number of them had been literally plucked up out of their home in Judea around Jerusalem and transported a thousand miles and dropped down in Babylon on the banks of the Tigris and Euphrates. Psalm 137 captures their pain. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and there we wept when we remembered our holy land, our Zion, our homeland, on the willows there we hung up our harps, for there our captors ask us for songs, and our tormentors ask for mirth, saying, sing us one of those nice little ditties you used to sing back at home. Sing us one of your songs of Zion. How? How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? How indeed? The mixture of politics and religion is always a challenging subject. It is always an intersection that is fraught with anxiety and challenge. How do we deal with differing opinions? How do we allow for ourselves to say what we believe and allow others to say what they believe and not get into a contest of wills where we insist that another person agrees with us? In both in politics and in religion, there is that tendency to want to make people, if you simply understood, if you got it right, which is my way, then you would not be wrong. How do we live with that? Years ago when I was in college, I was back home and visiting my parents, and my grandmother was coming over for dinner one night. And along with her was an aunt and a cousin. Now, the aunt and the cousin had become recent converts to the Mormon faith. And they were working pretty hard at trying to convince my grandmother that she should convert as well. Now, my grandmother was a hard-shell, fundamental Baptist, and she was not taking any of that. So conversations around that topic were kind of out of bounds. 
I had wandered over into the Episcopal Church from my Baptist upbringing for a while, and my grandmother was not very pleased with that either. So I knew that between the Mormons and the Episcopalians, we weren't going to talk about religion. We just wouldn't do it. But we also didn't talk about politics much. Even though my father had put his name on this statement that I alluded to, we just didn't do it because some families just don't. And ours was one of those that just didn't talk about it much. So, we're not talking about politics, and we're not talking about religion. What else is there to talk about? Sex? Nah. Yeah. We're related. Yeah, you know that. So what did we talk about? Family. We talked about family. My cousin had done this wonderful family history and genealogy, and she asked my grandmother all these questions about her growing up and about some of her ancestors. And I heard stories about growing up in the country and moving to the city and how her parents had been married in Texas and how there had been all this movement around this, that, and the other. They had gone from here to there. And it was a wonderful conversation. I don't remember all the specifics. I wish I had known. I wish we'd had the technology to record that sort of stuff back then on the spur of the moment. I wish we had, but I didn't. But what I do remember is a what I do have from that time is a very deep satisfaction of that conversation that we had. All over the place, politically and religiously, yet we had a conversation. Later on, I realized that we had, in fact, talked about politics, and we had talked about religion, and yes, we had even talked about sex. Because that's what families do when we are together. We are dealing in, that, in those issues. We may talk about other frameworks, but that is what we are talking about. To live life is to be involved in politics and religion and sex. It just is. That is family. But what are families? Are families simply biological units that are brought together by a succession of generations that procreate. Yeah, they are. That's how we get here. And we are more. Family is a series of connections that we make with other people. Our family is a body. And we use that image and we use that language to talk about the church. The church is the body of Christ. We're related in the body of Christ. We're mixing our metaphors, but we are connected. And from those things, new life comes forth. We are connected in new ways. The spring is among us. The buds are on the trees. The flowers are cropping up out of the ground. And we have new life. And it continues in our life as well. Family, 
That's what brought Jesus to Bethany. Lazarus was a friend of his, and his sisters, Mary and Martha, in the earlier chapters in John, when Lazarus was ill, they had sent word to Jesus, and they said, Jesus, come and heal Lazarus. We know you can do it. But Jesus didn't go right then. Jesus, come. Lazarus is dying. Lazarus is dead. Come, but Jesus didn't come. He didn't come. He didn't even go to the funeral. He shows up four days later, four days after the burial. And the grieving sisters, why didn't you come? Why didn't you come? Jesus goes to the tomb, and he raises Lazarus from the dead. New life. I am doing a new thing. There is new life. An image of hope for what is to come. Four days dead, according to John. And Lazarus is brought forth. That that visit that Jesus has with Lazarus and the sisters is a way to set out what's important. It, It was not to ignore the world that was around them. It was to share and shape the way of being a community, the way of living in faith and hope that is together. Now, Judas focused on the cost of it all. Man, this is just way too expensive. Mary came in with this very expensive perfume, and she poured it on his feet and wiped it with her hair. Now, wait a minute. That's, that's, that's getting kind of weird, Jesus. You know, that's getting kind of weird. And besides which, it's a waste. We could have raised, sold that very expensive perfume and given the money to the poor, but John's gospel says, no, it wasn't really about that. That's not what, Jesus, that's not what Judas had in mind. What Jesus says, though, is that this is all about beauty, not the way in which we think of beauty but it's about the beauty of a relationship, the beauty of being connected to each other and to God. Our beauty, the beauty that that God created the world in, is not what is constructed for consumer society. Our beauty is the fact that God created us. In God's image, God created us. Male and female, God created us. That is part of the beauty of the world that we live in, that we celebrate. And what Mary was doing was affirming that beauty and understanding the beauty of the world that is around us can transform us, can change us, can make us see things differently. The spring comes, the flowers bloom, and there are different colors. And oh, I hadn't noticed that color before. The beauty makes us aware when we see it. There are new things springing forth from the world. The words of Scripture today we heard affirm that. Generations have heard those scriptures, those words. Generations. Ever since the Gospel of John was formulated, it's been read. 
Ever since the children of Israel heard the words of Isaiah, they've been listened to. Thousands of years, people have heard these words, and yet we hear them as they fall on our ears. As we hear them, we cannot hear them as our ancestors hear them. We hear them as we hear them for our time and for our path. The psalmist said that the Scripture is a word, the, the Word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. That image is so powerful. We sang just a few minutes ago as we prepared to listen to Scripture, that old gospel hymn, I love to tell the story for those who know it best. We, we are hungering and he to hear it just like all the rest. We hear those things. We affirm those things. And yet, we live in a world that is full of all sorts of other things that are happening. We live in a world where there is animosity and there is discord and there's all this buzz about religion and politics and sex that swirls around us. And as we do that, we know we need to say what we believe. We know we need to say what comes to mind. And we know it. We know it. Which is, which is the way that Christians should believe? Hate, love or hate? Tell me, love or hate? Love, love, love. Love or hate? Okay. Do we want to practice good or evil? Do we trust the power of life or death? Yeah. We live in a world. Now, I do not want to deny the power of hate. And evil is strong, no doubt about it. Death does come, and every single one of us will face that experience. Flesh will come to an end. But there is a power beyond all of those things. And that power of love and of kindness and of life that fills us is the power of grace and hope. And it is not possible with hate or evil or death. So we affirm that power. And we affirm it in the midst of political realities and in the midst of situations that are hard. There, are, there is in the reception hall, there are a series of banners, and there's this, this uh, that's out there as well. And what this does is it gives you the, the history of those banners that are up on the wall. They represent the different creedal statements, the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed, the Scots Confession and the Second Helvetic Confession, Heidelberg Catechism, Westminster Confession of Faith, the Barman Declaration, Confession of 1967. They, they, they give visual symbols, and every single one of these symbols comes from a particular context. They aren't Scripture, but they are Christians coming together 
in the past saying, we believe the power of love and goodness and life has the ability to sustain us. And this is how we're going to say it. Every single one of those statements affirms that. And it came, every single one of them came out of a period of conflict. The Nicene Creed was created because the Roman emperor wanted to have a statement for the church, for Christians. The Westminster Confession of Faith came about because there was a civil war going on in England, and the leaders said, we need to have our, a theological formulation. The Declaration of Barman was made by church leaders in Germany who saw Nazism on the rise, and they said, we need to respond to this. Every single statement that we in our denomination and any Presbyterian of any denomination would say comes out of a period of life where there's a lot of talk about politics and religion and sex. It's where we are. It's how we live. Admittedly, as we live and as we deal with issues, there are struggles. And Christians do not always follow up on what they say, as the phrase goes, walking the walk and talking the talk. But we know where there are lines. 1 John 2 says, whoever says I am in the light while hating a brother or sister is still in the darkness. The book of James encourages us to be doers of the Word and not merely hearers who deceive themselves. If any think they are religious and do not bridle their tongues but deceive their hearts, their religion is worthless. We know when there is dissonance and insincerity and trouble. All too often, though, we want to be on the side that says, you're wrong. So it's, it's so much easier to say, you're wrong and I'm right, to, to say, this is not the way it is. Even the Apostle Paul, in his definition of love, starts out with negations. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing. I get it. We define by the negative so often. But we also can define by the positive. We can make statements of affirmation that God created the world, statements of belief, of trust, and those statements form us. They have consequences for us. They make us who we are. They give us hope. They give us aspiration. They give us something to lean toward, not to run away from. When I look back at that 1968 statement of belief in, in intention, I wish my father had talked to me more about it. I wish we had had deeper conversations about the religion and the politics and, yes, even the sex. Yet, I find that there is hope 
there, even there, in what has been. Hope comes when we say what we are for. There is a desire among Presbyterians to want to qualify things. You don't get to be somebody that wears a, a robe with three stars on it, three bars on it, to know that you don't qualify stuff. That's what education is about. We eliminate other possibilities, but we also need to not forget that we are affirming something. We are affirming God's power and God's life in the world. So this is where I stand for what it's worth. I stand for God's rule in the world. I stand for God's love to be shared. And I stand for God's mercy to be known. May God be at work among us, bringing forth a new thing. Thanks be to God. Amen.